0: Welcome to PharmaTalk Radio, I'm Valerie Bowling. I'm delighted to share a presentation from the 2018 Integrating Clinical Research as a Care Option Conference on the topic of, what are the regulatory and ethical considerations if lines are blurring between clinical research versus clinical care? This session is led by Dr. Allison Bateman House, Assistant Professor, Division of Medical Ethics at NYU Langone Health, and Catherine Vanderbilt. Chief Ecosystem Officer at RareFi Health. The 2019 Integrating Clinical Research into Clinical Care, otherwise known as CRACO, will take place April 29th and 30th at the Sheraton in Raleigh-Durham, North Carolina. Enjoy the podcast.
1: Before I introduce our next guest, I just want to give a little bit of um, background. So uh, we've heard and often been trained that the purpose of clinical research is to generate generalized knowledge for future patients. That's something we were taught, something we sort of live sometimes, where medical care is aimed to promote the well-being of the individual patient. And so often we have a hard time seeing how those two go together. But I'm gonna offer, just as a, a place to think about as you listen to our next speaker, is that the parallels between the two is you have a baseline state, you then do an intervention and you get an outcome. And so could we actually see them in a similar light? And what are the challenges associated with the ethics around that? And so I really would like to call to the stage Alison Bateman House, Dr. Alison Bateman House. She is an assistant professor in the Division of Medical Ethics at New York University and Long Medical Center. She has an advanced training in bioethics, public health and history, and she specializes in ethics in history of human subjects, um, in research, as well as in public health. And so, Allison, thank you very much. Mike or- Hello, everyone. It's been
2: my experience when I come to conferences like this that if I come up to the microphone and say, let's talk ethics, and I want to hear what your questions are, I'm met with stupefied silence or else a stream of people towards the door. So Kathy and I agreed that I'm going to do a bit of uh, a short presentation just to get some ideas out for you to start uh, marinating on in terms of issues that I think we should be discussing in a a setting like this. And then Kathy's gonna come back up and moderate um, a conversation where we do get to hear from you. But let me just go ahead and go through some things first. This is a very busy disclosure slide and basically what it says is I work with lots of patient advocacy groups and I work with lots of companies. And if you want details, I'm happy to talk to you about it later. And I wanna say before I go any further, that I do consider myself um, uh, enamored of this idea of marrying clinical Research to clinical care as much as humanly possible. There are many people in the world of ethics who, you know, their hair would sort of rise on end because, as Kathy just said, historically we think that they are different uh, enterprises done for different reasons, and the mere idea of integrating the two would would cause some sort of, you know, epistemological uh, uh, an upset. I'm not one of those people. This is my evidence showing you an article I published in Forbes of last year saying, you know, we should not wait until people have exhausted all options. We should be talking to them early and frequently about uh, enrolling in clinical research as an actual care option. So that's my bona fide that I'm not opposed to what you are talking about here, but now I'm going to raise some issues that I think we actually have to discuss if we want to do this well. So just brainstorming uh, things about clinical trials and what worries me about them. I am very worried about the fact that there are certain questions that are being researched uh, frequently and by many players, and then there are other questions that nobody talks about. And I'm not going to talk about that any further here because I have nothing to offer on that. I think it's a societal issue. We need to talk about it. I'm very concerned about who has access to clinical trials and who doesn't. We've already heard that mentioned today and in the previous days, and I am going to talk about that more in just a second. As an ethicist, I'm very concerned about the quality of informed consent and patient comprehension of what a trial purpose is and what their role in that is, and I'll come back to that in a minute. I'm very concerned about post-trial access to the trial treatment. I'll come back to that in a minute. I'm very concerned about the transparency of the, the clinical trial data after the trial is over? Does it get stuck in a file cabinet or a computer and never get utilized or does it get shared? I'll come back to that in a minute. I am very concerned about phase one research on healthy volunteers, but I'm not gonna talk about that here. And I'm also very concerned about the fact that the United States, unlike most other developed countries, has no compensation system for people who are injured when they're in research. Uh, Not gonna talk about that. So getting rid of the things that I'm not going to talk about, this is what I'm gonna come back to. So who has access to trials and who doesn't? Uh, Basically, in my opinion, there are four things that I wanna talk about here and you can see what they are. So let's go through them in order knowledge gaps. Um, You know, we've heard this already this morning, the average doctor doesn't necessarily know what trials are being um, conducted, where for what diseases, people don't necessarily know uh, what specialty centers to go to to get access to trials, et cetera, et cetera. It's a huge issue, we've got to um, address it. And, And actually, let me just back up for one second and throw out some bioethics terms because I am an ethicist and that's what we do. We talk about do no no harm. So obviously all of us go, yes, do no harm. We don't want to harm these patients. We talk about, you know, beneficence. We want to help patients, and that's why we're all here. We're trying to figure out how best to help patients. One of the bioethics terms that we don't talk about that much is justice, and that's what I'm going to be hitting on uh, hard and heavy for the next few minutes, the idea that certain people who have certain Health insurance policies, or have doctors who are knowledgeable, or have the ability and time to relocate to certain areas, have access to a different level of care, be it clinical trials or, or just specialty care that other people don't. And uh, you know, that's obviously a huge ethical issue. Murray said, and I agree with him. He was like, you know, we have we have immense disparities, and what can you do, right? What can you do? It's not it's not something that any one of us or any you know, all of us in the room together can solve, but it is a huge issue, and if we want to do this uh, endeavor of trying to help patients well, we need to address it, because otherwise we're only helping a subset of patients. So anyway. Off, off my um, my terms for a second. So who has access to trials and who doesn't in terms of knowledge gaps? So what what possible solutions are, th- are there out there? Well, clinicaltrials.gov was just recently overhauled. I don't know how many of you know that. Uh, it was a two-year effort to try to make it more user-friendly, more accurate, more updated, and just generally better overall. I'm actually um, running a webinar with clinicaltrials.gov on June 6th, so if anyone wants to listen to them talk about how how they've uh, revitalized it and what the intention is. Talk to me afterwards, and I'll be happy to invite you to that webinar. Inclusion and exclusion criteria. We just heard about this, and it's a huge issue. And it's also, fortunately, something we're trying to work on right now. So just this week, the FDA put out guidance about the inclusion of pregnant women in clinical trials. Up until now, we typically have protected pregnant women and their fetuses by not allowing them into the trials, which honestly could be the best care option for them. So this is an attempt to rectify that inadvertent harm. Uh, next week, the FDA in D.C. is having a meeting. I have the information there. You're welcome to join by live stream if you want. Um, that th- We were just talking about inclusion and exclusion criteria being too strict. This was based on an effort from um, uh, ASCO, so dealing with cancer research. But they, they went through and they did a multi-year uh, study and said, you know, typically we don't let people into our clinical trials if, for instance, they're HIV positive or if they're old, or if they had brain metastases, or if they have a concomitant you know, uh, condition of limited duration. And are these really sound exclusions or are they just sort of hangovers that we should get rid of? So, so this is an effort to take that initiative from the cancer community and move it globally and make sure that trials really are as open and accessible as they can be without harming the science behind the trial. Uh, post-trial access to treatment is something I deal with a lot, um, uh, especially in neurodegenerative disorders. You have people who, if they do get into a trial, uh, once the trial is over with, they tend not to have access to the treatment. And that may be because the treatment was not proven statistically Beneficent, But at the same time, the patient felt that they were getting something out of it, and now they feel that they are being actively harmed, that they cannot get that um, treatment anymore. They say, you know, I sacrificed my time, my body, my energy, my data, and now that there's something out there that was helping me, I can't get it. So this is a huge issue. I think it's going to be a growing issue as trials for, for diseases that currently don't have trials uh, start to open up and I just refer you, I give you the URL here for something done here in Boston that I think is an amazing resource for companies and doctors looking to deal with this issue. Transparency of data post-trial. Many of you probably know that we're in a huge sea change in this issue. It used to be that the company had their data, and it was their data. They didn't have to share it with anyone, but now we have uh, both sort of social change and governmental change making that um, no longer the case. So there, there's information here that I refer you to, and I'm happy to talk to you afterwards if anyone wants details. So that was my very uh, quick run through what worries me about clinical trials, and I dealt with uh, the ones that I can. I didn't deal with the ones that I can't, and I just want to spend a few more minutes on this issue of informed consent. As Kathy said, we typically said the objective of research is to obtain generalizable data for the good of future patients, and the objective of treatment is to benefit that actual patient then and there. So in trying to blend the two together, do we not have a a crucial issue in that they're two separate enterprises with two separate goals and in trying to meld them, perhaps we mess both of them up. I don't necessarily agree with that, but these are the things I'm concerned about. I'm concerned about the idea of therapeutic misconception. Therapeutic misconception is rampant both among patients and among clinicians, unfortunately, and it's the idea that being involved in a clinical research project is somehow beneficial to the patient. Now we know, based on data, that being in a clinical trial is beneficial to patients in terms of you have more uh, frequent monitoring, you know, you have access to 24-hour nursing support or whatnot as things come up. But the but the actual uh, intervention may not be in that person's best interest because the whole idea of research is that we are putting you into something that may not actually be for your best interest, but it's going to give us useful data we need to know for the future. Um, It's already a huge misperception. I'm afraid that if we try to blend the two, it's only going to make it worse. And so I would urge all of you to tackle this now before you go much further and try to figure out how to address this. Um, This is a, a quote from a piece that I wrote that we don't have to to dwell on, but basically just saying like therapeutic misperception is not uh, us being evil and it's not us being stupid. It's a very natural human emotion that if you think something sounds biologically plausible or if you saw it work in one patient to expect it's gonna work in others. So it's just us fighting against our natural impulses. So, um, So that's something I think we really do need to address. So the, the typical response of like a regulatory person would be to say, well, we just need to make sure we really specify in the informed consent that you know, what we're doing may not benefit you, although we hope it benefits you. you know, as long as we spell it out and make it very clear to people, then we've covered all our bases. And my concern about that is, as was already mentioned earlier, informed consent is already very long. It's already very cumbersome. It already is something that is not easily integrated into a discussion between a doctor and a patient about options and what the doctor is recommending. So I don't want to make it even longer and more cumbersome. while trying to figure out how to inform people of the fact that we're we're trying to integrate research into their routine care, I want to make sure we don't err by you know just adding to the legalese and and paperwork involved and and the the second point I have here goes back to my issue of justice. you know there are certain places that are barely coping with what they do now, and so if we move into a different paradigm where they're expected to do more or to do something different i'm afraid we're just going to exacerbate the divide that already exists between places that are able to offer high-quality care and places that are not. Um, So just to underscore, I am sympathetic. I think uh, one of the best ways to get access to investigational drugs is a clinical trial, and I think that clinical trials make sense for many, many patients. And ideally, it's something that at any point in a patient's uh, disease progression, their doctor would say, you know, here are the standard therapies, here are the plus and minuses of them, here are investigational therapies, here are the plus and minuses, and together let's figure out what makes the most sense to you. But I just want to caution, obviously there's not room for everyone in a clinical trial, and some people are gonna be excluded, either for the reasons I just mentioned, in terms of you know structural barriers, or for actual sound scientific Reasons, or for other just very rational reasons, like I have a job and I can't take off once a month to come in and do a a clinical trial appointment. So, you know, there are bits and pieces that we can tackle. Yesterday we had a great discussion about virtual clinical trials, which I love that idea of taking things out of the doctor's office and letting people do things at home. I think we can be creative, but I think that we really do need to be creative and not just try to say, well, let's take our current research enterprise, slam it into our current clinical care enterprise, and together, voila, we have something fantastic. So... That's basically what I wanted to say. And, you know, I know everyone in here knows this about why some people don't want to participate in clinical trials. So just keep in mind that when we're trying to convince people that in helping them by making clinical trials an option, we could very well be turning off some of the patients that we already treat who say, you know, I don't think you're doing this for my benefit, I think you're doing this for your benefit. And that's it. So, Kathy, you want to come up and grill me? And hopefully that got enough people starting thinking along the lines that I'm thinking that uh, people are willing to throw questions at me.
1: Thank you so much, Alison. That was wonderful um, to hear your thoughts and your experiences and so forth. So we have about um, 13 minutes to have a conversation and have a discussion and hear your thoughts around all of this. I'm going to start with a couple of questions um, based on the material that you had. Um, so I'm going to talk about the data uh, and you talked about how um, it's, it's important and it's essential that we actually get the data out. Um, and now there's regulations and expectations around that. Um, so a little bit of background is I used to work in um, the data world for about seven years. And one of the things I used to do um, with a lot of the leaders in the company was is that data was collected for a certain purpose. And they would often ask, well, can we use the data to do this or can we use the data to do that? And I would actually say No because that's not the purpose in which it was collected. So you need to know the context for how the data was collected. And so what are the ethical issues you see happening as we start unveiling this data and we start making it available, and and it's gonna be in a, I I guess I'm still a little worried about the form in which it's gonna be available, and then the inferences and the conclusions people are gonna make, that could be helpful for a pharma company, but negative for a pharma company, but not necessarily the right thing to do. What are your thoughts about ethically about that as we start to approach that?
2: So basically it divides, can you hear me?
1: I'm not sure this is on,
2: okay. Uh, Basically I divide it into two categories. One, uh, the one that I'm, you know, sort of optimistically more interested in discussing is patient concerns that their data not be wasted. So, especially, I do a lot of stuff with rare disease populations, and they say, you know, we do these natural history studies, we do these patient-reported outcomes, we do all sorts of things, and it never gets us anywhere. So why did I waste my time, or my kids' time, or my family's time to do something that didn't advance the science? So I'm very sympathetic to the idea that Ethically, if we ask people to participate, we have an obligation to actually do something with the data they give us. Now, it doesn't mean that the data is necessarily incredibly useful. You know, in a case of a drug trial, you may have a negative finding, but you at least put that data out there so someone doesn't go down the same path and replicate that, that trial all over again simply for lack of knowledge. So that's one hand. Then, then on the other hand is, what are the ethical concerns about sharing data when perhaps patients don't want that to happen. And this goes back to the whole informed consent discussion. I think you have to repeat often, frequently, and in as many different ways as humanly possible to patients what it is their data is gonna be used for. Um, I'll give you a, a very real life example. Most of you are probably aware that last week the social media platform Grindr got in trouble for inadvertently, well not inadvertently, potentially inadvertently disclosing HIV statuses to companies. And Grindr's defense was, well, it's in our user language. If you read it, you would know that any data you inputted into us could be shared with other entities. And hence, if you're going to tell me in your profile that you're HIV positive, you should have understood that that data could be transmitted. I don't think that's sufficient. I I think, A, a a user agreement by default is something nobody's going to read because it's almost meant to be, you know, un-understandable. But also, you know, as I'm saying, I think you need to do it frequent, often, and in different ways. A user agreement is something you see once when you sign up or maybe, you know, uh, in best case scenarios, every two years when it comes up and says hey don 't forget you signed this, um, but you know it doesn 't say every time you log in to do something different hey don 't forget you 've agreed to share your data. Do you want to change that setting or something like that so that 's grinder that 's a social media uh, scenario which is different from clinical trials, but my point is is that people have a limited understanding and lack of imagination about what their data could be used for. And I think ethically we have an obligation to try to make them aware of the universes of possibilities that it could be used for and what those ramifications are for people. And then obviously to to have a way for them to opt out. Sometimes you can't. If you're in a clinical trial, you might say
1: there is no opting out. You're either in or you're out, but people should know that. Great, so switching gears to another topic and then hopefully um, bridging it to the audience. You talked about the inclusion exclusion criteria as well as that was a question that came up in the previous session. And um, again, having sat there and looked at a clinical trial and um, been involved in protocol development and sitting there with even bioethics individuals with us, you know, trying to uh, write that criteria. And I don't know if other people at pharma companies use that same methodology, but that's something that we did. Um, What I found um, transpired, which I couldn't seem to change, was that um, through, through the intent of fairness, through the intent of equality, and through the intent of access, that the inclusion criteria basically got more and more and more restrictive, because it then seemed to be fair. And it didn't matter how many times we had that conversation, and then um, options within the clinical trial seemed to generate ethics concerns. So um, creating cohorts in the protocol or creating um, specialty groups or addendums also seem to generate—this is just my experience. I'm not saying this happens at every single pharmaceutical company—also seem to generate concerns. And so we we ended up, um, in my experience over 30 years, really creating these very uh, rigid—and this is not the best way to describe it—but like healthy sick people. Um, is basically how we ended up writing, which wasn't necessarily... um, And it was a combination of science and ethics. Um, And so I don't know if you have any experience about um, how to kind of unlock that or whether that was the right thing to do or maybe I just didn't really understand it, Um, but that's what I seem to experience.
2: So I would say that the process of clinical research and creating your cohorts and dealing with, uh, you know, issues... Uh, off-protocol enrollment or whatever that come up does generate ethical concerns, and it's why people like me have a job. So um, keep hiring me. That's, that's what I'm here for. I, I'm here to help you with things like that. Um, I totally agree that we end up dealing with the sickest, uh, sorry, the healthiest sick people Possible and it has the inadvertent uh, outcome, as we all know, of having data that doesn't necessarily translate to the real world. You know, um, I was just involved with a study where, uh, for terminally ill multiple myeloma patients, where a disproportionate number of the people were actually still running marathons, and you think to yourself. Like who are these terminally ill cancer patients who are running marathons? Well, it was the the process of trying to pick the super healthiest of the lot to to be in the trial. Um, So the question is either do we have a real sort of come to Jesus conversation about we need to have a more representative trial population, or do we do something else? So one thing that I'm working right now with a couple of companies is you have your clinical trial. Your clinical trial does have the healthiest of the sick patients, but then you have a... a, parallel trial, which is basically your expanded access trial. These are people who did not fit the clinical trial. They were too sick to be in the clinical trial, but at the same time, the company agrees to give them access to the drug and takes data on what happens. So what you end up doing is you end up having the cherry picked healthy, healthy in the trial, which is the data you're gonna use for the FDA. But then you also have a parallel trial in people who are not as healthy, may give you a better insight into what's happening in the real world and you have the option to send that data to the FDA if you think it's something that uh, supports your, your application. So I think there
1: are a lot of creative things you can do. And I think in that setting, I think that starts to set up how you could then bring it into the healthcare system, because then that potentially opens up more avenues about how many patients could actually participate. And then I think the pharma companies need to understand how to use that data, how to set up that type of access program, how to talk to the FDA, the EMA, whoever else about it and how to represent that because you still need to disclose it. Um, I think that's the key point of that as well, right? So, but if I
2: can just respond to that, so of course that's a huge lift on the part of you in this room. Because to change what pharmaceutical companies do is in of itself a huge lift. To change what regulators are willing to accept and look at is a huge lift. And then to to change what doctors know to do on the day in day out treating patients—they're all huge lifts. Doesn't mean we can't do it.
1: They're huge lifts. Okay, great. How about any? Qu- thank you. How many? Any questions, thoughts from the audience? Jennifer.
2: I was going to say, I I gave that whole presentation to uh, make sure no one was too scared to ask questions.
3: Well, Allison, I have to say, first of all, as far as future audiences, as you come to the podium, those people who are leaving the room have a missed opportunity. So thank you very much. Um, I have a, a question for you, and this might be really kind of a random thing. But having lived on the side of patience, and providers in facilitating clinical trials over many, many years, I have found myself bumbling and stumbling as far as that right terminology. Are they patient volunteers, clinical trial participants, patients? Um, But more recently, I've become kind of attuned to this idea and this concept of neutralizing and talking about healthcare consumers versus patients. I'm just interested in your reaction to that term, healthcare consumer, as opposed to a patient, clinical trial volunteer, what have you.
2: uh, I was in this fair city in December at a multiple thousand person gathering for uh, ALS, and I got up and spoke about uh, research subjects. And uh, you know, had my Twitter uh, handle on the slides, and uh, before I even sat down, had just gotten completely slammed by people screaming at me that they were not subjects. You know, this was not a monarchy. Uh, at very best, they were pers- participants. You know, uh, other words. To me, I use the words I use deliberately. If it is a trial that has been construed in part with a patient population on issues of concern and interest to patients, then I consider patients to be participants. However, if it is a pharma or a NIH or something uh, designed trial in which perhaps a token patient was asked somewhere along the way of what do you think about this, but they were not truly uh, at the table in its involvement, I consider the patient to, uh, the research participant to be a subject. and. I think it's important to make that distinction also in terms of informed consent uh, because what we're doing to subjects is not necessarily for their own good. What we're doing for patients is ideally for their own good. So I do try to differentiate between subject, patient, what have you. Consumer, I'm not 100% sure of. I'll have to think about it. Um, I know that many clinicians have told me they don't like the idea of consumer because they think it does undervalue this idea of them having some sort of fiduciary responsibility to to care for and take care of the patient instead of it just being a commercial transaction. One thing that actually a a patient herself uh, put forth to me is to call just everyone a volunteer, a research volunteer. I kind of like that one.
1: We have time, sort of time, one more question, if we have one, and if we take too long, I'm gonna run out my 30 seconds. Jeff's coming.
4: Thank you so much. Um, so one of the things that we're trying to do on the, again, the tradi- I, I gotta come up with a new nomenclature too for the traditional healthcare side, is engage the employers. What are the ethical concerns that you see associated with engaging the employers in assisting with this process of educating their employee base about potential opportunities in clinical research?
2: When you say employers, are you talking about, like, the healthcare care systems educating their doctors? Who are you, who are you talking no,
4: about? No, I'm talking about... The, the very large um, independent employers, that whether they be city governments or school districts or Whole Foods or um, Nation Star Mortgage or some of these you know, LSU, some of these really large employers about the opportunities? Um, how do you, what, what do you see are the ethical challenges of the employers engaging in the discussion?
3: So
2: for years, I have had as sort of my pet fantasy, the idea that we have a public service announcement about what a clinical trial is and just try to uh, deal with scientific um, education across the board because I talk to patient groups who don't know what the purpose of a placebo is, you know, don't understand why something would be randomized, blinded, et cetera. I would love to just elevate the level of discussion across the entire country. So whether that was employers taking a leading role in that form of the government, I don't care. I think that's a desperate need. Talking about ethical issues for employers, the thing that immediately comes to mind, and it's not what you were going for, but I can't help but say it, is the fact that most people get their insurance through their employers. And so most people's health care is through their employers. And many, many people are afraid that A, uh, whatever they want, their employer is not going to cover. Or B, in seeking care, their employer is be- going to become aware of whatever issue that they're having, whether it's a genetic issue, a uh, uh, you know, cancer diagnosis that they haven't divulged yet or whatnot. You know, we have legal protections that are supposed to deal with that second issue, but things fall through the cracks, and uh, it's not unheard of for employers to learn about through HR or you know, other means, um, about these things that their employees did not want them knowing. Um, you know, I'm all in favor of increasing willingness to participate in clinical trials wherever it comes from, but I think the fact that your employer is your source of healthcare insurance is also something we need to keep in mind. So, there was a big debate a couple years ago, uh, or at least a big debate in my world, which is do we have an ethical obligation to participate in research? You know, all of us benefit from the fruits of clinical research. We all get the medicines that are over the counter or prescription only. So, the question is do we therefore then have an obligation to participate? Um, I'm sympathetic to that claim, and I think that as an employer, you could certainly claim to your employees that, look, for the benefit of all of us, it would be good for you to do this. But I think there's a difference between trying to incentivize
1: something and trying to mandate something, and that's where I would be concerned. But could you separate incentive and mandating with rewarding? So similar to—by the way, I realize we're going over time, so I'll stop. Um, But similar to—just leave you with this thought is that similar to if you fill out your questionnaire for your insurance and if you uh, partake in certain— health choices, like smoking, that there is a cost associated with that. If you make the decision to participate in clinical research, there could be a reduction associated with that. So you're not necessarily um, incentivizing it, but you do reward it.
2: Yeah, so my employer uh, gives me, I think $25 a month because I go to a gym. Yeah, I mean, there's no reason why you couldn't have some sort of incentive that if you participate in clinical research, um, you get some sort of incentive uh, reward. The only thing is, you have to keep in mind, is many forms of clinical research have risk. And Absolutely. you don't want to push people into something that is above their preferred level of risk simply totally because
1: agree. you're uh, incentivizing it. Totally agree. With that, I will stop, Allison. I'm standing. Thank you very much, Alison. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you.
0: We hope you enjoyed the discussion. The 2019 Integrating Clinical Research into Clinical Care, otherwise known as CRACO, will take place April 29th and 30th at the Sheraton and Raleigh Dorm, North Carolina. For more information, visit theconferenceforum.org and again theconferenceforum.org. Thanks for listening.